Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the pastor at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And today, alongside our guest, Matt Skinner, and in celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, we are getting very silly and possibly a little sacrilegious with a visit to that classic first century text, Monty Python's Life of Brian. In our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'll ask Matt and Adam how we can possibly use this movie to think about life and ministry, theology, and in the world. In our second segment of the show, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up specific ideas of what you might do with Life of Brian for this upcoming Sunday, which will be Easter Sunday or Paschal Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Try to be as ecumenical as possible here. Year C, April 21st. In our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching. But before we get too far, let me introduce Matthew Skinner. Matt is professor of New Testament at Luther Seminary and the author of a number of books on New Testament interpretation. He's also one of the hosts of the Sermon Brainwave podcast out of Working Preacher, which needs to be in your rotation if it's not already. Matt, it is great to have you with us in what I presume will be the silliest part of your day. Oh, and maybe the best part of my day. This is great. I'm happy to talk about uh, Life of Brian. This was a formative movie for me as a young person. Uh, and so today I even still um, love going back to it, seeing what it tells me about the first century and uh, what it tells me about the ridiculousness of my, uh, of my work. Well, let's, let's get into it. Uh, today, Adam, I think this may be a first for our podcast. We have been talking about movies and theology for a while now, but it may be the first time we are talking about a movie that actually has Jesus in it. Um, you know, we, we did talk about the Jesus Christ Superstar Live musical, but that's not quite a movie. And anyway, today, of course, we are talking about Monty Python's Life of Brian. I'm not sure how much I have to describe this movie's plot. I'm not actually sure whether this movie has a plot, but I... I suppose it would be something like, next door to the manger where Jesus is born, there's another baby born named Brian, who ends up, through a series of misadventures, having his own cult following and meeting his own grisly end. And along the way, we are skewering a whole bunch of biblical cliches and a whole bunch of old Hollywood biblical epics. But it's also Monty Python, so mostly it's just silly, easily the silliest thing we've watched for this show. And I'm, I'm curious as to how we might use it. Matt, I'd love for you to just kick us off. How can we get into this thing? And can a movie this silly help us think about life and theology and in the church and in the world? Well, I think it can. The best thing about this film is, like you said, it's just ridiculous. I mean, that's the humor of, of Monty Python. And it's, it's, it's junior high humor uh, that continues to be funny into my adult years. So it, it's a reminder that we have to laugh at ourselves. And perhaps also a reminder that at the heart of Christian faith are a lot of claims that on their surface are just kind of ridiculous uh, or just sound ridiculous compared to normal, uh, you know, measures of, 
what's reasonable to believe or uh, what's logical or what's where power resides. And so it reminds us of a lot of the upside down nature of Christian faith, which I really appreciate. Uh, and as well as the mystery of faith, that uh, there's so much that we can't know and don't know. And if we're not willing to sometimes laugh at ourselves or sometimes uh, acknowledge the ways in which our faith claims sound a little absurd, then we risk taking ourselves so seriously that uh, we can't grow and we can't expand and we can't see ourselves to the eyes of others. So uh, I'm all for satire. And this is a movie that uh, is nothing but satire, I think. Yeah, I think it is. And in watching this again, I think you said earlier, Matt, that the Monty Python was formative in some point in your life it was for me too and this movie in particular i've seen this movie uh, countless times and um but it's been a few years since i've gone back to it and i was surprised by how smart these six gentlemen are <laughs> like they just continue to be so smart just not just about the ways in which they spoof the the surrounding world of of at least at this point, 1979, Great Britain in the Western world, but their attention to how religions work and the faith claims of the ancient Near East and the ways in which um, they have sort of melded the Britain in a sort of post-industrial age with um, first century Jerusalem. It, it came across to me as much smarter than I'd ever remembered it. So as a middle schooler watching this and finding it so funny, I don't think I recognized how bright all of uh, all of Python is in the way that they construct a loosely constructed plot, but also just construct these little scenes that have one gag in them. But the gag kind of hits deep, not just um, as a, as a Christian and a person of faith, but also as someone who um, who is a creative sword who wants to create things that um, that are deep and penetrating. Yeah, I think one of the tricks with this movie is, as it is with, with all of Python's features, is that to some degree it's a whole film and to some degree it's a series of comedic sketches. And there are places here where the individual comedic sketch is like more memorable or it's the thing that lives in my memory from having watched this as a kid. In some ways I, I find it easier to see the tree than I do to see the whole forest. But I would be curious, I mean, I'm sure we could go through a laundry list of individual scenes here that have theological traction for us. But I'm curious to hear from you all, for the kind of the forest eye view, what are the major takeaways that you have? What conclusions does this film draw about life and faith? What, what, are, the, what are the broad strokes? I mean, I think for me, what stands out and I think what is the thing that Python does best is it, it constantly is trying to recognize those boundaries that we hold very dear and that we use as measures of purity for whatever type of identity we're trying to construct. And they, they can recognize those boundaries. Um, and then as they are always doing, they love to cross over them and to um, and to press them and to expose them in many ways, and so they're doing that not just with um, with religion and, and claims of faith, but also with uh, sort of our, the idea of how 
religious stories have been commodified within the larger film industry. And, um, and so they play with that. And then they also play with the sort of political fanaticism of the seventies and eighties, uh, that is coming out of Europe and, and Great Britain in particular. And so each moment they're finding a line that is designed to, to sort of like hem us in and, um, and give us a sense of security with our identity. And every time they start either they're like crossing over that line and talking about how idiotic it is that we have that line, or they're just puncturing the sort of internal logic of that line. And I, I needed that as, as a middle schooler. And I'm realizing as a, as an adult, I need that as well. I need it again. Yeah. The way it talks about, or the way it portrays people with power as all being morons, right. And as being kind of out of touch with how they're being perceived uh, is well, it's great when you're a, a junior higher. Um, it's also great when you're trying to navigate uh, life as an adult um, and, and looking at political realities around you. So I love that in terms of the way in which the film asks the question of what do people do in the face of regular daily oppression uh, and the prospect of a horrible form of death or execution. And uh, the response is, in this film, uh, you mock it, right? You, um, uh, you make fun of it. You take the, the, the ridiculous aspects of, in this case, imperial figures, uh, and you throw it back at their face, and, and you make fun of the fact that uh, they have speech impediments, right? I mean, there's things, of course, that, uh, you can't get away with uh, imitating in your sermon on Sunday. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, the scene with, with Pilate and Biggest Dickus is just absolutely hilarious. Oh, it's my favorite. Um, right. I love that scene. The, the send-up of the Barabbas scene. And, but, it, but it touches on this issue of what's, what, is a, what is a crowd to do in the face of a tyrant? Uh, with whom over whom they have no control whatsoever, right? But they're subject to them in every way. And the response here is, well, mockery is 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 one is one really good response, and it's a powerful response. Yeah, and it's mockery of of how out of touch they are, right? Is that it is the the oppressed who recognizes the vast distance between the the powerful and the subordinate, and and they then can press. I mean, with the limited power that they have, they can press the um, and control the powerful figure by exposing their um, what they can't see. I mean, I, th- I think we see this a lot um, where people, politicians or people in power are constantly being made of, made fun of for being out of touch. And so there was something one politician recently who was like trying to campaign and was trying to figure out how to eat fried chicken. And this was delightful to so many different people because it's like, of course you are so out of touch and it, and it, and it's fun to mock the powerful when they don't realize how little they know. And I think the movie is in that way, trying to say something about, or trying to be in part of this conversation about what evil looks like. I almost would pair it with something like Mel Brooks's The Producers in the way that, like, Brooks is almost scandalously trying to make Hitler look like a moron and an idiot, uh, which does not conform to the kind of arch-nemesis language of evil that mostly permeates post-World War II pop culture. Uh, and in the way, and that kind of arch-evil um, 
figure also sits in all of those big biblical Hollywood productions around what Pilate is supposed to look like, what the Romans are supposed to look like, that they are pitted as, you know, kind of Sith Lord level Machiavellian geniuses. And Brooks and here Python are saying, look, what if, what if, what if they're all just morons uh, who, who, and, and the world doesn't operate anywhere near the level of logic that kind of the arch nemesis evil figure would, would imply it's, it's got some, I mean, there's some Hanaho rent in there about just how banal all of this stuff is. I mean, she's the one who talks about the banality of it, that it, it doesn't have to be, um, as smart and it could just be that we're all morons. And I, I find that, uh, humbling but also empowering in its own in its own beautiful way what did you all as you watched this movie i'm curious whether you identified anywhere i mean did you see yourself as an object of ridicule in this film or as one of its protagonists how do you i'm mean, granted we're we're 40 years out from the production of this thing but as it looks at the church as it looks at all these political movements, where do you see yourself? Oh, I, I think this film in some ways anticipates certain aspects of biblical criticism right now, <laughs> especially around, especially on the topic of, of so much empire criticism uh, in this, uh, right? So Reg and his you know, fellow band of, uh, of revolutionaries in the, uh, the PFJ, right? The people's front of Judea. Yeah. All they can do is sit around and make resolutions, right? They can never come to come to action. And so, you know, you're only allowed in this group if you really hate the Romans, right? I hate the Romans. How much? A lot. <laughs> okay. You're in. And as long as you are not Judean people's front. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So we've, we're in a time in biblical studies. There's a lot going on in terms of empire criticism, right? How does the New Testament show us a church resistant to empire? And in, in my opinion, one of the things that drives that is a kind of embarrassment that the New Testament doesn't resist empire enough, <laughs> not as much as we wish it would. And so we, in some ways, we're, we're looking for as much evidence to, to pump that up. But it's, you know, it's always a little funny when a bunch of... Uh, when a bunch of uh, white male tenured professors are sitting around talking about the the revolutionary nature of, of New Testament faith, um, I sometimes feel we're more like Reg uh, and everybody sitting around in the room making resolutions than we are actually doing anything. Yeah, I mean, similarly, I I I felt to your question, Matt, sent up by Reg and the People's Front of Judea, similarly because there's you know, just in the church and all of the small things that we fight about that, um, that divide us, that we see as divisions among us. Um, you know, the, the, the phrase narcissism of small differences sort of comes up a lot in my life as I, as I try and figure out either within the church, trying to run committees and think, uh, we care so much about this small difference in the way that we do worship or the way that we're going to run this committee that it, it divides us. And similarly, as I look at the, the ways in which, uh, which denominations are, are beginning to, 
to interact with each other now, especially in light of some of the major changes that are happening. I mean, sort of really um, important changes that are happening with respect to um, understandings of the denomination's role within the wider church, whether or not we need a sort of large institutional superstructure for churches um, and cans like a huge denomination serve churches that need to be more nimble. It's a lot of, I mean, I think similarly to you, Matt, I feel like a lot of times we're just sitting around having these conversations, um, noting who we don't like um, and, and saying things like, well, at least we're not the Southern Baptists or something like that. Um, when we haven't actually accomplished very much with respect to, um, action and beginning to like save or help the church in, in the Western world. Yeah, which right. all comes to a head in this really kind of, you know, gut-punching way at the end of the film when <laughs> so PFJ brutal. shows up in front of the cross and, like, has this, you know, we've 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 decided to do something. We just want to say, you know... Thank you for your martyrdom. Thank you for your martyrdom. Uh, and then sing for <laughs> he's a jolly good fellow. And it's like, well, you know, th- there are real lives at stake here and you've decided to respect due process. And I think that critique hits home very squarely with a lot of how the mainline church can operate and, and then the waters in which I swim too. Another point in the movie that just kind of struck me is the moment where the guard is handing out crosses for crucifixion and he's doing it very politely and asking people nicely. And it, it reminded me of all of the times in my own work, in my own life where um, my, my sense of decorum and politeness and comity has um, has sort of superseded some larger moral question, mm-hmm. and so I've I've sought politeness before I've actually sought to change some moral atrocity that's going on in front of me. Well, we're all you know we're all in the waters of the Presbyterian Church, but we do it decently and in good order, Adam. But like <laughs> I, the decently in good order. At, at times, you know, that I'm thinking there's this there's this group that I like where there's someone who says like, yeah, I I swear, but you bomb hospitals, like, and I'm the problem. Um, there's I, I feel that tension, and I think what the gift of Monty Python is, is that they can find that tension really easily too, and then they find the humor in it, which um, which gets me laughing, and then um, by the end of the scene, I sort of see myself. Uh, and then there's, this movie is just full of good gags. I love, I love this. The ex-leper is an amazing moment in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Michael Palin plays it so well where, um, it's asking questions about like what happens to the economy, um, when Jesus comes in and starts healing everybody. And like, what does that do? It's, it's, it's such a silly and stupid question at the same time. Um, uh, actually got me thinking, okay, like, oh yeah, like this is a thoughtful way to think about this story, which is we don't, we hear about these stories of Jesus and very infrequently do we try and extend the story and try and imagine what happens to this person after we just say, look, they've been, they've been taken back into their community, but like, what does that actually mean? What is that? What are the ramifications for having been a leper? Matt, I had a uh, uh, a history professor in in high school 
an European history professor who swore up and down that Monty Python's uh, Holy Grail was the most accurate cinematic representation of life in medieval Europe. Uh, <laughs> and, and I would ask you the same question. How does this, to the best of your knowledge, uh, stack up as a kind of representation of what life in first century Palestine actually was? Like, what, 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 what can we honestly take from what the Pythons have put on screen? Well, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, we can quibble about little things here and there that that aren't quite right in terms of where Jesus was and where's Pilate living and how many people dressed up as centurions are walking around. But, but in general, uh, I think it's pretty well researched, uh, especially compared to so many other Jesus movies and compared to a lot of kind of popular ideas about about life in the first century. Um, the the sense of of kind of popular resistance to Rome might be a little overinflated in terms of you know the the kind of constant clear and present danger, uh, but it certainly is there in terms of people chafing under under Roman rule. At the same time, the the way in which they show that Roman rule was a mixed bag, right? So, uh, what have the Romans ever done for us? You know, then the list, right? Aqueducts, right. sanitations, <laughs> you know, roads. Uh, the, yeah, Viniculture. The, the, the Herod, exactly right. So Herod the Great and others did a ton to kind of pull that part of the world into greater prosperity and greater connection with the rest of the world. But at what cost, of course, is is one of the huge questions. Um, some of the 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 references to oh, I don't know. I mean, health and like you mentioned with the ex leper, right? So. So purity and health and economics uh, that's in there that, that I really appreciate. I love the the scene of the various apocalyptic preachers, <laughs> right, who are there. And, and one of them's like, you know, uh, one, you know, it's just covered in mud, right, and just screaming like John the Baptist probably looked. And then somebody else is talking about, you know, a friend will lose the hammer of a friend and they won't know where it is. You know, just these, these silly um, symbolic stories that start to get spun out that, you know, you read enough apocalyptic literature and you read enough of the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. And you think, yeah, did anybody really know what was going on here? Or was everybody writing in some kind of symbolic encoded language or, or what? And um, so it's, it, it captures a sense of, there was something for everybody in terms of the, the variety of teachings and the variety of uh, different kind of resistance movements uh, and things like that. I think that's I think that's helpful, and it it gets to kind of my final question for this segment, which is is just whether in your your teachings around uh, first century context or Adam and your ministry, I I, I want to ask the question that I, I sometimes ask in here, which is how, how do we use this film? Like, how can you imagine using this in your context, uh, either in a classroom or in the space of of ministry in the church? Uh, how would you use it? Well, I have used the scene before of what have the Romans ever done for us as a way of saying, look, we can't just treat the Romans as if they are these thoroughly evil oppressors who have nothing good to offer. Uh, I've used the scene of the Sermon on the Mount where they mishear, you know, blessed mm -hmm. are the cheesemakers, and then quickly <laughs> start talking about 
anybody who produces dairy products or whatever. I mean, that, right. But you have a transmission question, sure. right? How can we, can we trust the people who transmitted these stories or not? And what if an error got introduced? But I think even more, um, I don't know, viscerally is the movie portrays, and this is especially the scene where Brian starts to become popular and he starts telling kind of stupid moralistic stories that nobody likes. But then once he's, he refuses to speak and becomes mysterious, everybody all of a sudden starts to turn to him as the Messiah. Right. And so it's just kind of this anxiety that I think all people of faith must feel, at least I sure do of what if we're wrong Right. Or yeah. what if the witnesses are unreliable to such yeah. an extent? Sure. And so I would talk about that as a way of not saying biblical studies will teach you to answer the historical questions to people's satisfaction, but rather to say, look, when people have deep questions about historical, you know, accuracy or correspondence, sometimes behind that question is a deep spiritual worry of uh, what if we're all being had? Yeah. Sure. Or, or, or what if it's not just that we're being duped, it's that we are sort of willing participants in our own, um, dupedness <laughs> that we want to be, that there's, there's a part of human nature that, that, that wants to be told that wants to live in that mystery and will do anything for it. I, I mean, similarly to that, Matt, as I think about how I would, introduce this to a congregation. I, I I keep coming back to the scene where the crowd is laughing at Pilate and Biggest Dickus, um, in part because it, it's one of those moments where we begin to see how people in subordinate positions have always sought to mock the world. Um, and that's been the, the sort of regular resort. Um, and in many places, it's the only place where they can gather some measure of power back, if only because they have um, they have enough distance and they have enough justification to be able to stand back and say, like, oh, I was just joking. I was just I was just kidding. It doesn't matter. And so there's a sort of measure of safety to to act with sort of regular insubordination that is violent or um, or dangerous um, would in a place like ancient Rome would gather the full force of imperial might down on your head. But, but laughter and humor and comedy has always been a resort of the subordinate class in order that they tell a different story. And I think, um, I think that there's some of that in scripture. Um, I don't think it's everywhere, but there are quite funny moments where, things do get inverted and things do get turned. And, and in the history of Christian tradition, it happens quite a bit. And even something like the, the role of the, the donkey in the, in the early church is, <clears throat> um, is just designed to sort of make fun of imperial might and trying to figure out ways in which, um, you know, this, this idea of a donkey becomes representative of Christianity, even amidst uh, a world that thought donkeys were stupid. Just a quick break to tell you how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Recently, they published a conversation about Rowan Williams and Marilyn Robinson. It's a really interesting conversation. I usually find uh, 
I'm I'm one of the few people who find Marilyn Robinson's work a little um, slow, perhaps boring. But this conversation is anything but. I think they do an amazing job of talking about imagination and theology and a number of different things. It's a, it's a really wide ranging and interesting conversation. And so I commit that to you. Go and check it out on the Christian Century website. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are looking at the lectionary passages for April 21st, which will be Easter Sunday. We've got Peter's sermon in Acts. We've got the promise in Isaiah of peaceable kingdom. We've got Paul's assurance in 1 Corinthians that death will be destroyed. And, of course, we've got the text that almost all of us will be preaching on, the resurrection accounts themselves this year. It is Luke's turn, the synoptics, or, as always, you can opt for John with Mary in the garden. Matt, as you look through these texts, what jumps out for you as it re- relates to life of Brian? Well, probably most obvious to me is the fact that there's no resurrection scene in the life of Brian. So there's uh, nor is there any hint <laughs> that anything happens after the cross, right? So that becomes interesting that we have to, and this is probably a spot where, in my experience, at least Christians have disagreed about the life of Brian, is how are we supposed to react to the crucifixion scene? Is that where the movie becomes sacrilegious? Is that where the movie has some deep hidden truth? Uh, is that where the movie actually crucifies the nihilism of always look on the bright side of life? You know, you can make of the, people can make of that crucifixion scene in life of Brian, almost anything they want it to be in my experience. But of course, in Luke 24, in John 20, in Acts 10, you've got people answering back saying, no, 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 cross is not the end of the story. Uh, and this is what it means. This is what the resurrection shows us about the cross. Well, those are difficult questions to get at, but it pushes, I think, I think Life of Brian helps us keep pushing the question of what's going on at the cross and what, how do we view the cross differently as people who uh, have witnessed the resurrection or have have witnessed the resurrection passed down to us, especially in a movie where the witnesses all look so ridiculous uh, and unable to fully grasp what's going on. So to me, it's, it's the movie, I don't know if I would use this in a sermon, but at least the movie forces me to reckon with the question of what's going on at the cross. Is the cross being mocked? on Easter Sunday? Is the ferocity of a death by crucifixion being acknowledged on Easter Sunday? Is the ridiculousness of the claim that a dead man's been brought back to life, um, does that just sound even more absurd when we think about um, life of Brian and what that looks like in the um, resurrection accounts? Luke and John are, I mean, Luke by far is the most negative toward the women who come back with a report of an empty tomb, right? Nobody believes them. Uh, in John's gospel, you know, Peter and the beloved disciple have to run and figure out who gets to the tomb first, et cetera. But it's not quite sure. not quite clear exactly how convinced they are or what being convinced even means. So I don't know if it's, this is maybe a too roundabout way of saying it, but um we have to ask, I think, what do we learn new about the crucifixion that we didn't see on Good Friday that perhaps we see now? Yeah, it's a good question. I think especially since 
the 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 dichotomy of this like grisly death that these people are about to experience in Life of Brian alongside this like jaunty tune where they whistle about always looking on the bright side of life. Um, you're right. It, it is a sort of a poking fun at, at, at the ways in which religion is not just an act of faith. It is a sort of therapeutic enterprise. It's a way for us to feel better about ourselves in the midst of death. And that something like crucifixion is, um, uh, ought, ought to puncture that sort of therapeutic model of religiosity. And if, if you are to take the cross very seriously, where, you know, an innocent man is put to death, then it should give you pause about the sort of the, the justness of the world or the, your, your moral place within it. And I think like you, as I, read these texts, the ways in which the, the cross, the resurrection is an answer to the cross is, um, is a really important question for our theology, especially particular theologies that want to see the cross as a sort of central atoning work. When we look at these resurrection passages, they have to, they have to give us some measure of efficacy with respect to what exactly Jesus is trying to accomplish with all of it. Right. So if 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 the cross is just a propitiation of sin via the blood of an innocent human, um, then why the hell do we need the resurrection to begin with? It if the if the sacrifice is the thing, then then the life um, after doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think the Python is beginning to sort of wrestle with these questions about like, okay, here's, here's a, a grisly form of execution. And if we take it seriously, we really can't actually look on the bright side of life. Do you think that that scene would have been more or less effective if the crucifixion that they displayed had actually had the level of physical visual grisliness <laughs> to it? that crucifixion actually has. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, and it's probably just like budgetary reasons, right? But the actual crucifixions they display don't seem to have the physical wear and tear on the bodies that I would assume would go along with that actual form of death. I mean, there's a pretty long distance between this depiction and something like, you know, the, the slash horror of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and I, I, it's interesting that we're supposed to buy into the, the irony of always look on the bright side of life while the like production design itself seems to be giving us the rosiest possible version of crucifixion. I think that's a good point. I mean, it, it, uh, it, the film does obviously pass way over the horrors of crucifixion. Um, there is no death scene even, right? Not, not only is there no Easter scene, there's no death. Right. Um, on the cross, except for the, uh, the suicide squad, of course, but, uh, <laughs> that's another story. Um, yeah, they, I mean, they obviously are going to choose to pass over that and, uh, I, I kind of wonder why, but it's, but it's worth, I, I don't know. I, I almost would want to like peek ahead a little bit toward things later on in Luke's gospel, at least for the preacher, uh, the response that we're going to get once people start to recognize Jesus on the way to Emmaus and then back in Jerusalem is not 
this had to happen because God needed innocent blood to be shed to forgive sins, if somehow this was all necessary, right? right. If you only read Scripture better, you would see this was necessary, and now we can go out and proclaim forgiveness of sins. Well, that's all also really hard to figure out, uh, you know, where that where that comes from, right? Um, at the same time, you've got on the way to Emmaus where people are saying, uh, we thought this was a guy who was going to liberate Jerusalem, right? You've got the deep disappointment of Good Friday still of people who thought he was going to be a deliverer, very different than who he was, right? But our leaders crucified him. So I think in Luke, the, the, the answer back that we get, again, this is beyond the lectionary text assigned for Easter, but the answer back we get is, in some ways, an answer back to imperial power, right? Or to the assumption that the leaders get to decide um, whose vision of, 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 a, of a kingdom uh, gets to prevail and which one does not. Uh, but that's also done with pretty much, with, with a pretty tame look at crucifixion, right? None of the Gospels describe the agony of crucifixion. Yeah. They just mention it. Adam, what about for you? Are there other, are there other scripture texts here that are jumping in in light of Python? I, I mean, there are a couple and they're small. The, the silliness of, of the beloved disciple in Peter's race to the tomb just makes me laugh. There's, there's, it just seems so petty that the beloved disciple or, you know, wants to make sure that, you know, that he arrived first. (laughs) And, and there's, they're all like, John has all of these little asides that, that crack me up because they seem so ridiculous and out of place and, and sort of unbecoming of the, um, of the genre or the form. Right. And I, I like that in part because I think, I think Python is playing with genre here too. Like they're, they're, they're trying to send up the big budget, uh, epic Bible story. That was a, like an easy winner yeah. in, uh, in Hollywood for a long time. They actually they, filmed this in Tunisia using sets and extras that were used for Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth like <laughs> a couple of years previously. So like they have like crew there that have done all those same shots before because they had just done them with Zeffirelli. Anyway. Yeah, and so I, I like that they can find the ridiculousness in the genre too. And there are times when I you know, the little asides that happen in these texts just crack me up because they just seem to, they seem to puncture whatever is supposed to be the majesty of the story itself. And you see that, Oh yeah, there is, there is an author here and this author has a voice and also has like an agenda. And one of the agendas is to look great. <laughs> um, or, so fast. Or, or fast. For some reason. Right. 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 I mean, the whole thing just, it cracks me up. I just think that's so funny. How about you, Matt? Well, I'm still thinking about this, like the banality of all of it. And so I'm thinking about this practice that may or may not work and, uh, and may be interesting for, for listeners. I'm, I'm going to encourage myself uh, in preparation for um, this whole Holy Week, both the Good Friday texts and the Easter text, to give them a thorough read-through out loud in my best Monty Python voice. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, what 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 would it, what is it going to look like to read Jesus's dialogue with Pilate in Monty Python voice? What is it going to look like to read the encounters in the tomb in like my best Eric Idle impersonation? 
Um, just to like, not, not that it's going to unearth anything new or profound, but that possibly it helps give me a new perspective, um, particularly as these texts bounce up against questions of power and authority. Well, what, what possibilities unearth homiletically if this is all just silly in the most tragic sense of it? Uh, and, and how does that reshape uh, the way that we might we might hear the gospel uh, in this season? So, yeah, that's my my, my personal disciple, uh, my personal. So, yeah, that's my personal discipline for the week will be to read these texts aloud, um, channeling my best my best uh, Eric Idol. And I mean, to that point, too, Matt, I think. Uh, Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem is really an interesting text and in part because she doesn't talk about the banality of evil to like the last paragraph of the, of the text. Um, and, but I, yeah, what would happen if you read that last, uh, it's probably like the last chapter of the book, uh, where she's describing the sort of the, the, the court and the Jerusalem court and the way that Eichmann sort of was powerless in it. And that the, 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 the verdict was predetermined. Um, and how all of it sort of is in this very complex stew, creating creating this idea of the banality of evil, um, and then to to read the the passion text. I think I think that and to see see Pilate in a measure of power, but also powerless in his own way. All right. Well, I think that is going to about wrap it up for Life of Brian. Matt, we are so grateful that you spent some time with us. Thank you for bringing your wisdom and your silliness to this endeavor and uh, hope to have you back soon. Well, I appreciate being on here. This is uh, the highlight of my week. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, What's your postlude for the week? So this is in the, 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 the through line here is things I could have recited out loud 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> first example being many scenes from Monty Python's Life of Brian. Second example being many episodes from the first decade of the existence of The Simpsons. Adam, were you a Simpsons guy? Uh, I, I never was a super fan, but I would happily watch The Simpsons. Yeah. And and so I, I had this experience a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Megan Amram, who writes for The Good Place and is one of, one of my favorite current comedians, uh, um, has, is a longtime Simpsons super fan. And she wrote an episode that aired a couple of weeks ago. And so I did what I do now about once every five years or so is I go and watch a new Simpsons episode more out of fidelity and curiosity to Megan than to the show, uh, which, you know, by by popular understanding, has just not been its classically good self for but basically two decades now. Uh, and much to my surprise, I quite enjoyed the episode that I watched. It was called Bart vs. Itchy and Scratchy. It's very much a, a kind of Simpsons take on modern uh, concerns about representation where Itchy and Scratchy are getting... Um, recast uh, as, in, with female leads and Bart loses his mind and Lisa gets on board with the, the the gender warfare that explodes. And this should all sound very familiar with all of us who have ever logged on to Twitter <laughs> in the last five years. Uh, 
But it prompted a larger question for me, which is this question of whether or not it is even possible to write a good Simpsons episode now. Hmm. Um, Because in some ways, I, I think the answer to that is clearly yes, because I watched one. It was a good episode. And in some ways, the answer is, of course not, because no modern episode can live up to the kind of pedestal on which folks and which I very much identify kind of place those first seven or eight seasons um, that have become scriptural in their own way. And so I, I did a little bit of digging to look through various lists of Internet wisdom about episodes of The Simpsons from the last 20 years that are considered good. And I have remember watching various of them at times when someone on Twitter would say, hey, you should watch last night's episode. It actually was like like an old Simpsons episode. But but none of them have poked through into the cultural zeitgeist hmm. in the way that some of those classic texts did. And I, I suspect there is something here about, well, and of course, in one sense, the power of nostalgia, um, the power of canonization, and the ways in which certain texts become important. And in some ways, after the canon gets closed, it's very, very hard to get back in the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another way, there's something, there was something encouraging to me, as someone who has been very much on this, oh, they just don't make them like they used to, sort of bandwagon <laughs> for, for uh, too, too long. To, to recognize that, no, actually, they, they they do in many ways make them like they used to. The problem in many cases is me. And I wonder what that says to, um, to, to churches and to folks in faith who are trying to think about what it means for God to do a new thing. So that's, that's what's bouncing around my head right now, Adam. Uh, what about you? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I mean, especially since... It's not just you who's changed. It's the world has changed around The Simpsons, but also repetition is its own change, right? It's, you know, you hearing or watching something the 700th time is going to feel different than you watching it the second time, even if the quality is consistent from 2 to 700, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it it also, I should say, it it also matters that, when The Simpsons was first on, and in those first that first decade of its life, it was unlike anything else on television, and that is dramatic, dramatically not true anymore. Yeah, and so right. it, it it faces the consequence of a culture it helped to create, uh, where now it's it's um, it's swimming against equals in a lot of interesting ways that makes it harder for it to poke through. Well, and equals who are allowed to freshen things in ways that The Simpsons are not permitted to, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, so. So Big Mouth can do things that The Simpsons can never do. and yeah. But there is no Big Mouth without The Simpsons. Um, okay, so here's my thing. This is my yearly plea on Easter Sunday. Um, to Before, either in your preparation for preaching uh, on, on the Easter texts or the morning of Easter, <clears throat> go and read John Chrysostom's Paschal homily, it remains one of probably the most important sermons that outside of Acts that has been preached in the Christian church. 
Um, part of what makes it so important is its its reception later by largely by the Eastern Orthodox Church that has inserted it into the Eastern Orthodox liturgy for Paschal Sunday. Um, but it is such an amazing example of economy and confession and theology. And it's not long. I mean, it's about you can fit it on a page. And every time I go back to it, I find something new that is like beautiful and brilliant. It does this. It does repetition really well. If you want to see like how to repeat yourself in a sermon, it does theology really well. And it also has this sort of like soaring hope that gives it life and gives it wing. Um, so every year I, I try and lift it up as a as a source of inspiration to everyone who's trying to figure out what it, what do I say on Easter again, uh, that I haven't already said, or that, that people haven't already heard. Um, and it's a good reminder that it's not always like trying to find something new, but recognizing that the, the power of the message is in the story is in the narrative. And Chrysostom understands that and does an amazing job sort of, telling the story and its consequence. So you can just look up on Google, just Chrysostom, Paschal Homily, it'll show up. There's a million different places that have already published it, and it's uh, it's important. It's one of my very favorite sermons. Uh, thank you, Adam. That's awesome. I believe that is your annual plea for listeners of the show to go read this sermon, and maybe this year I will even go and do it. Yeah, maybe. I'll put a, I'll put a link to, on our show page. Awesome. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the page and to tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. And our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Very Naughty Boy. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.